here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate <laughs> is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. And we are back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel. I'm back at home. It's giving pandemic vibes. I hate even saying the word pandemic. Like when people are like, here I am to bring up the pandemic and something that happened during it. I'm like, what if you didn't? We already we already did that. Stop it. Don't do that. <laughs> I actually am always trying to figure out when I'm writing something, like what to describe. I'm always like, oh, during the pandemic. But I mean, then there's the pandemic still going on. Right, uh, but yeah. then there's also, do you say lockdown or do you say quarantine? Because I, mm. you all, when I'm bringing up quarantine, that era, we're usually always specifically talking about 2020 to 2021. Yes, right. When you were inside for sure, not seeing anybody, right? Yes. Yes. Um, I do that during the week now, though, just because <laughs> I don't want to see people. Right. No, I have this thing called TCM. I I mean, like that will keep me company. That's my, you know, that's my vaccine. Okay. What if I just became an anti-vaxxer right on this show? Just threw it all away. The uh, actual sort of beauty about moving back to New York and being like in an apartment where I can see people outside all the time. And then like, I'm working from home writing is now I sort of get to feel like the woman in the window. Because mm-hmm. I see people all, I literally see people right now as I'm talking mm-hmm. to you. And so it doesn't have that isolating feel of LA where you're like, is anyone around? It's so quiet. But then yeah. you can just sort of sit here and do I really need to leave? Because you're looking out the window, it feels like I've done something. Right, right, right. Well, actually, do you know what that reminds me of? My life is a little bit the girl on the train because I, mm. out my window, can, there's you're a liquor store. You're drunkenly dancing on well, that's platforms. What I mean. <laughs> I, I, there's a liquor <laughs> And slurping, yes. Um, No, there's a liquor store near me, and I get to see people walk into it all day. And I really thought I would out, like, you know, the down-low alcoholics in my life. And there's been no goss to share. I have to tell you, it's really not panned out for me. (laughs) I just love looking out and seeing, uh, oh, actually, I think I just saw John Cameron Mitchell walk by. So there's No, you didn't. Really? Yeah. I'm in the West Village. Yeah. I I truly see Sarah Jessica Parker walking by a lot and Matthew Broderick. Oh my God. And then you just yell like they just do Plaza Suite for you sometimes or whatever. <laughs> well, I don't want to see that again. <laughs> oh, you saw that. Right, right, right. I did see that. I did see that. Uh, that was a journey. Uh, no, it just should, should just yell lines out to them. That'd yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they'd be very receptive to that. Yes, yeah, of course. And just like that. <laughs> 
<laughs> she thinks an assassin's after her. Yeah. Uh, well, so this was supposed to be our dark week, and it technically is because we're not recording a damn thing this week. Mm, luxury. Um, but we do have an interview this week with the delightful Bob Odenkirk and his daughter, Aaron Odenkirk, who have created a poetry book together. Yes, they and she is an illustrator. She does the little illustrations for it. It has a Shel Silverstein vibe and it stems, as they'll tell you, from uh, poems they wrote together when he was reading to her uh, when she was a kid. And now mm-hmm. they've collected those poems, added to those poems, illustrated them. And it's a, it's a rad little book. And also, I've just always wanted to talk to Bob Odenkirk, who has been, whatever your version of um, like superior entertainment is on television, he has been a part of it. You know, whether it's like uh, goofy comedy or uh, prestige dramas, he's, you know, done it all and also seems incredibly down to earth. So uh, yeah, we confirmed I- that in the interview. He is exactly that. Yes. Although I will say I love their dynamic. Too, as I mean, I didn't obviously have a father in general, but to have a parent <laughs> right. who is sort of uh, could also critique your work uh, and guide you on, you know, a path as an artist, like is that a little bit like having your um, professor living at home with you all the time? I fucking bet. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I will never get over. One time, um, I was at a. Uh, the TCAs, which is where they have like the cast for the new TV shows come and do interviews for the press or whatever. And Mamie Gummer uh, was in that show at the time, Off the Map, I believe, with um, mm. yeah, that Shonda Rhimes show. Shonda's that didn't biggest go hit. Yes, right. The, the first one that comes to mind when you think of Shonda Rhimes, yes. And somebody, of course, from the audience asked her, you know, your mom is Meryl Streep, which I, I just imagine saying that to her. And then, uh, <laughs> and then the question was, does she have any advice for you? And she literally goes... No, not really. And uh, it's just like, wow, you live with Meryl Streep and she has no acting advice for you. Interesting. I always think about that. What's going on in that house? <laughs> You're an actor too. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just imagining Meryl now, one of her best comedy roles, like walking past the bedroom, seeing Mamie rehearsing for um, some sides. She has an audition the next day. Meryl's like, oh, um, no. And she <laughs> keeps walking. I've got nothing. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> She's like, I'll let her. I'll let her do that by herself. <laughs> I have nothing to say. Wow. <laughs> Don Gummer's like running the sides for some reason. I can't. Yeah, whatever. That's also just like, if you're Mamie Gummer too, you have to just sort of wonder when you watch your mom's movies. If you watch your mom's movies, I'm sure she's seen many of them. Obviously, you have to have your favorites, and then do you have the movies where you're like, well, my mom sucked in that one. <laughs> I would love to know that, where she's like, oh, my mom is a phony bastard in that movie. She's like, don't put on postcards from the edge in front of me. I can't even see that. She's like, a cry in the dark? I heard that fucking accent every day. (laughs) Oh, my God. Someone should write a book just about seeing Meryl behind the scenes preparing, because that's the thing you still don't really know about her. Like, what mm-hmm. is she physically doing to prepare for each of these things? Um, not that they're, the, the book Her Again by uh, Michael Shulman, friend of our podcast, isn't wonderful. All right, we will be right back with Bob and Aaron Odenkirk. And of course, this is a real episode, so we do have a Keep It segment after the interview. Remember the time we didn't do one of those? No, people rioted. It was like Haymarket in Chicago. Just everything was uh, awry. Imagine writing for this free show we give you every week. <laughs> I'm in whips and chains, okay? I'm Mary Mary. 
<laughs> the shackles are on my feet, and I just want to dance. Today on Keep It, we are joined by two incredibly delightful artists. They are father and daughter, one of whom you know from incredible shows like Mr. Show, Breaking Bad, of course, Better Call Saul, and most recently, Lucky Hank. Here he is today talking about his newest book, Zillet, and other important rhymes, which was illustrated by his equally talented daughter. We have them both here today with us. Please welcome to Keep It, Bob and Aaron Odenkirk. I just sort of have to ask, you know, um, starting out with this book, you know, what is it like to decide to embark on a creative project with your father? (laughs) I thought you were going to ask with your daughter. Um, (laughs) It wasn't much of a decision for me because he kind of said I had to do it. Um, (laughs) That makes it easy. (laughs) <laughs> it makes it easy. Now he said I had to do it if I wanted. Um, and it was great. You know, I love my dad. I think he's funny. I think he's relatively easy to work with. And I think he respects me, which is a big part of why this worked. Um, and I definitely respect him and his ideas. And it had this book, Zillet, had originated from um a bedtime tradition we had where Bob would read books to us as little kids before bed. And then we'd sit down and write a poem sort of maybe in the style of that book or based on something that happened to us in that day. And so I couldn't have done this project without him um, because he was really the impetus behind both generations of it. It was a joy to make a book with my daughter in case you were going to ask me. Uh, but also, the truth is, I did kind of have to push her a little. I mean, she's been doing art her whole life, and she went to college at Pratt Institute to study art and uh, thinking about art and doing art. And so I knew she was good and had developed her skills. I, I think I did underestimated how good she is. Um, but... It was the early days of the pandemic, which were so scary and so quiet and so empty. Um, And the kids, uh, Aaron and Nate, her older brother, were both doing their college classes on Zoom. So they were in their bedrooms at home. And then they had no social life at night. They weren't going to clubs. When I was 19, I was at a club every night. And... (laughs) I just thought we just should just get a project going of some kind, make make something out of this time. And I'd had this book sitting on the shelf since they were little, since they wrote all these little poems with me. There are so many in here and a lot we didn't use, but uh, that's because they're not very good, most of them. <laughs> but some of them were good. I knew some of them were good. I mean, and and so we just... You know, it was just like, uh, it was a little bit of a, it wasn't really optional, but I guess she could have told me no. But I said, let's do it. Let's go to work. Come on. No, where did that tradition come from? Where did you decide like, oh, my kids, after I read to them, should write poems and that'll be productive for all of us involved? I, I mean, it's not from my childhood, but I think for me, one of the big overcomes in, in being in show business was just believing that you had the right 
I don't know, to make something. And I think if you can implant in your kids the sense and the feeling that they are going to make this world one day. They're going to be the doctors, the lawyers, the artists, the movie makers, the actors, the studio heads, whatever it is. They, it's their world eventually. And they need to believe that it's possible. So here we are reading all these wonderful, classic children's novels, books, not novels, books, you know, Seuss and uh, Shel Silverstein and some of the ones we love, the more modern ones, Caleb Brown and numerous others. And I think by making a book, by making a cover, by putting it on the same shelf as all their favorite books, it's, I don't know, I'm trying to get them to see that you can write one of these books one day. You will make the world. And the, the friends that I know who grew up in show business, I have a couple friends, uh, Simon Helberg, uh, ben Stiller, obviously, um, they they all had a better sense that it's not it's not entitlement. It's a sense that this is legitimate and that I have to work at and that it's a job. So I thought it was a healthier, actually a healthier way of looking at a career in entertainment than the person who comes from outside and is always doubting themselves um, on every level. So in collecting uh, not just the poems you'd written as kids, adding to them, putting illustrations to them, did you also then look back at the works of people like Shel Silverstein? And what did you discover reading these poems? Because I feel like if I read Shel Silverstein, I might discover yeah. like, oh, he's actually among the more twisted minds I'll ever read. <laughs> okay, so I avoided Shel Silverstein when we were writing these, rewriting, mm -hmm. rewriting them. When the kids were little, we read The Giving Tree. We, did, we had both his collections of poetry, um, and the kids read them. We didn't read a lot of them, but we read some. We read a lot of Dr. Seuss. Uh, but when we were rewriting them, you know, 15 years later, I just avoided Shell. And then when we finished and we had our poems that we liked, then I went back to Shell and I checked, and I and there was one poem or two, Aaron. There were two, right? That were too close to Shell. Wow. They were they were just too close to him. But the truth is, there's some overlap for sure. Because if you're gonna write for kids, you're gonna write about food, you're gonna write about going to bed, you know, there you're gonna write about you know fears, unnamed fears, like monsters or nighttime or nightmares, you're going to hit on subject matter that is shared uh, by children uh, in their, you know, early stages of life. You're, you're going to, these are the things they think about. They think about eating. There's a lot of poems about food and, and, and dessert and, and pooping. You know, so, so there was always going to be some overlap, but one of the reasons I avoided it was reading his stuff was because I was, I just wanted our piece to come from our poems. And then if there was anything that was too egregiously overlapped, I would take it out, which we did. Mm -hmm. Well, so it's interesting, obviously, to hear, you know, about the influences that came from, um, you know, reading poetry um, as a family and then writing your own. But Aaron, I'm interested in where... Um, 
the inspiration for, I guess, your illustrations first came from and sort of what you drew on and what you continue to draw on as you create art? Yeah, um, I have plenty of inspirations. I think growing up, I was really personally into like the Mutts and the Peanuts and Calvin and Hobbes. Those were some of the first books that I was able to read on my own uh, that were charming and sweet and funny and rep- replicable uh, to someone that age. You know, like I could draw the cat from the Mutts and have it look like the mm-hmm. actual cat. Um and then as I got a little older, I started to reflect on like Shell and Tony Millionaire and Edward Gorey and sort of illustrators that have uh, maybe darker perspective and like use more cross-hatching and a more complicated images and often kind of darker content. Um, and I think when we first moved into working on Zillit, I was very interested in pursuing that sort of style because it's what I found interesting as an adult starting to read like Charles Burns and more advanced graphic novelists. But um, in working on the book and developing what we saw as the core of the book, which is really for kids four to eight about language and inventing words and having fun with art and writing and also carrying like a level of silliness with you throughout the world those themes sort of, I think, pushed the art and encouraged the art into a friendlier, softer, younger direction. And so I hope someone looking at it can appreciate the parts of me that like a complicated image or a uh, dense scene, um, but that it's not so exclusive or overwhelming to like a five-year-old, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm interested in where your sensibilities overlap. Do you guys, I mean, it's, you are an illustrator, you are largely a, an actor, a very hilarious actor over the years, very serious actor sometimes, but what, in what ways do your sensibilities overlap and which ways do they diverge? Oh, that's a good question. I wonder what Aaron's answer to that would be. Uh, one of the things I was excited about in her drawings as she pursued uh, laying it out was I think she... The the book was, the poems were originally written with kids who are between the ages of four and eight, right? So they're, the, they really reflect a lot of the things that a kid that age might be thinking about. Because I, I would write a line, the kid would write a line, or, you know, I, I, had a, I had an audience, at the very least, if I was writing the poem, I had an audience in front of me who was six years old. So I had to play to them. So... There's an innocence and a sweetness. And you were mentioning, Lewis, I think Shel Silverstein being kind of aggressive and edgy and maybe his, his, there's a darkness in some of his stuff. Um, and I think this book is a little sweeter and more um, innocent. And I think Aaron's choices of color, her choices of the line, it, it all reflects the tone at the core of the poems. Um, so, yeah, I, I think in, in regard to this book, we aligned on a lot of things. There were moments in the writing process where I like maybe had too simple of an idea or too trite of an idea. And because of his age, he was able to be like, we've seen that before. Let's try something else. And then there were certain moments when he had too much of like a parent idea like as a parent, he found it interesting, but as someone who was more recently a kid, I could be like, 
it's too pedantic. It's too luxury. Let's move on from that. And so we sort of balanced each other out in that way. And for culture writ large, he showed me most of what I know. Like he gave me Adrian Tomin's book. He played uh, The Replacements and Built to Spill and The Strokes for Me on our Mm. drives to school. He showed me um, some of my favorite movies like Planes, Trains and Automobiles and The Blues Brothers and... uh, Gosh, what else? I mean, just everything. I have to, unfortunately, accredit to him, which I think he accredits to himself as a 20-year-old. It's interesting that you also brought up, by the way, Peanuts, which I think about, like, over the years, Peanuts has changed from, like, one specific tone to now, like, there's a new Apple TV special where it's, like, a pretty sunny cartoon now. And, like, once upon a time, there was, like, a real... Oh, I would say man. droll and contemplative streak to you may, grim streak to peanuts. And I'm wondering, are you at all nostalgic oh, yeah. for those like older cart, like even like Shell Silverstein where it's like, what is actually going on here? Do you miss that world at, any, at, at all? At all? Totally. I personally look, I feel like the, all these different artists and all these different uh, creators are, are addre- you know, it's a variety, right? It's a dynamic range. I do think it's a shame if they've made Peanuts too sunny because, man, Peanuts is lonely and existentially <laughs> bereft or unmoored. Uh, I mean, we were reading those Peanuts collections to our kids and we stopped because our son started saying the things that Charlie Brown was saying about, you know, nobody likes me. Um, oh, God. I mean, Charlie uh-huh. Brown just says, like, I'm I'm a loner and it wasn't my choice. You know, he says things that are just sad as hell. I have a feeling, and I'm not a historian on this stuff, but I have the feeling that those were sort of written for adults, mostly. And it kind of trickled mm-hmm. down to kids. And now... There's still cartoonists who do that sort of subversive cartooning, but again, it's just for the adults. Like they have Instagram accounts and sub stacks and people are getting emailed them. They're not showing up in the paper where some six-year-old runs across them and can enjoy them also. And so I do miss that. Like, I think that that's, you know, that sort of darkness is kind of valuable to encounter when you're young sometimes. Well, it's a bit too. I mean, I feel like how um, we used to be presented even these sorts of cartoons or, you know, peanuts or even, you know, I first discovered peanuts when I was reading the newspaper, you know, my parents' newspaper and you had that right alongside Spider-Man, which I would read and then, you know, Family Circus and then also Mary Worth, whatever that old lady was up to. Uh, But like I would digest all of those, you know, and then I feel like at some point you commercialize those into peanuts are for kids. So, yeah. Totally. As a person, you know, who has taken in a lot of your father's, um, he was introduced you to a lot of art. Uh, and then obviously, you know, you've gotten some of your interests from him as well. Um, what is it like digesting one another's art um, and seeing it? Like, are you able to sort of like watch your dad on screen? Or like, how do you feel when you read his writing? And I guess vice versa, um, Bob, when you sort of like are looking at your daughter's art when it's not for the book that you're working on together. Like, you know, what, like, where does your eye go to that? Is it going to go to a critical eye or is it just sort of like letting Aaron do her own thing? 
I'll be honest with you, Ira, I think I'm pretty critical. Um, and Aaron knows that my I am and my wife Naomi is too. Um, and it's actually been a, a, something we've had to try to modulate because I think the kids were acutely aware uh, that we were in this business and that we were critical members of you know, the world of people writing and creating um, to the point where Aaron told me the other day that when she was at other kids' houses, she used to watch the Disney Channel. Do you want to tell them, Aaron? Yeah, I I mean, we have a contention about this because he says it wasn't an official rule. But in my mind, growing up, it was basically an official rule. No Disney, no Nick, only like BBC, mm. Sesame Street, and then like older <sighs> adult shows. Um, and so I would go to my friend's houses where they were allowed, uh, you know, <laughs> snacks that didn't have zero sugar in them and Disney channel. And I would <laughs> just lounge, absolutely lounge and consume. Um, and I knew, and I wouldn't tell my parents about it, not because it was illegal, but because I, there's like a degree of shame about it. Like, it's kind of shameful. To- I, we never had a rule about it, but I'm sure if the Disney thing popped on, which it did occasionally, you know, we would immediately start tearing into it. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think that this goes to even the work. I, I, I've run writer's rooms at Mr. Show, and I know what it's like to have a good writer's room and uh, uh, not a good writer's room. And one of the things you need to do when you're creating anything is have an open mind and be supportive. That's how you start anything. Eventually, you have to kick in all your crit- critical faculties. But to start anything, you got to start with some encouragement and hope. <laughs> and so uh, I, I like to think I'm good at hearing uh, an idea and being uh, supportive and finding my way to the place where we knuckle down and bring on all our critical faculties. But um, I think that Aaron maybe got to experience that. And I, that's, that's something I learned from writing at Saturday Night Live, where at the time that I was there, that was not the philosophy. And uh, I remember the first <laughs> I thing I pitched. Uh, yeah, the first thing I pitched at Saturday Night Live just got pounded to death. And it was a perfectly fine idea. It wasn't a great idea, but it wasn't horrible. The idea was I had flown in to work at SNL on a thing at the time called People's Airlines. Did you ever hear of People's Airlines, guys? No, no. You're too young. Okay, so (laughs) it was the first low-budget airline. (laughs) It was before JetBlue and... Things like that. It was in Southwest. It was before that. And it was the first one. You could fly from Chicago to New York, I think, I want to say for $49. Um, And they had no frills. I mean, you got nothing. You just got on the plane, general seating, no snacks, no nothing. And, you know, and that was great. And I wrote a I want to, I said, I, my idea is for an airline that's called like uh, everybody's airline and they don't really know where the plane's headed. <laughs> they don't tell you. Um, 
there's chickens on board and people bring their goats, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and they just beat the shit out of me for this simple idea, which sort of fit because People's Airlines was actually a big deal. I mean, it, everyone would have known what we were referencing if we did a, a uh, parody commercial or whatever for it. And, and I thought, I remember even at that moment where that happened going, this is not the way to get the best out of people. The first thing you do is hear the writer, think about it, try to, uh, hopefully you laugh, but if you don't laugh, ask the question of, so what are you going for here? And try to understand the goal or what tickled them or what got them going. So I try to apply that hopefully to Erin in her journey of illustrating the book. Hmm. Um, I also want to point out that recently um, I'm an obsessive uh, Kathy Griffin fan uh, and she posted a picture with you Good. from the 90s since you guys have known each other for years and years. Yeah. And I was wondering for the both of you what long-lasting relationships you have with funny people that have been sort of the biggest boon to you creatively in your life if there are specific funny people around you who really make you uh, do what you do or help well, you do David you do. Cross, David Cross and I have been great friends and you know, work together. Uh, my brother, Bill, uh, who wrote for The Simpsons for like 17 years and uh, Disenchanted and Futurama now, um, is very, very funny guy. Um, oh, I am surrounded by people who inspire me. I mean, Brian Posehn, Scott Aukerman, uh, mm, Peter yes. Goulds, Ray Seahorn. Uh, I, I just am surrounded by clever, inventive uh talented people so what did kathy uh did she post it on instagram yes you know? and she said uh yes i, I it looked like you guys were outside outside some club or something it was definitely mid 90s i believe god i cannot work instagram okay i'm gonna try to see it <laughs> watch out <laughs> yeah, i think it was a video hard. too yeah um, <laughs> i i don't have any big names but of course, I have professors who've inspired me, and I went to a Nick Ternasso book signing, and I got to meet Adrian Tomine there as well, and that was pretty epic, but they're not people I know. Um, I'll give two, though. There's this illustrator, Travis Millard, um, who goes by Fudge, his, his studio's Fudge Factory Comics, and I got a hold of one of his graphic books when I was like six, and I loved it so much that I redrew one of his drawings and brought it to his art show. And he's been like a family friend ever since. And when I had my bat mitzvah, he came with like Crayola markers and did quote unquote, like Sharpie tattoos on my friends. And it was so epic and cool to like have this guy that I kind of idolized involved in my life like that. Um, and then in the comedy realm, I'd say my brother, I don't think anyone can banter with me like my brother. Um, he really brings it out of me. And he wrote a lot of the poems in this book. And I just have a lot of respect and love for him. I just want to say before we close that I think it might be valuable to do an entire illustrated book of Ray Seahorn's greatest moments on Better Call Saul and just give it to the Emmys so that we can <laughs> once and for all show them what she what she deserves. <laughs> I'm with you, man. I mean, wow, right? I mean... Just uh, just a powerful performance and so intelligent. And she made her character so intelligent. And that's just 
an amazing thing to do. I mean, you do it with your eyes, you do it with your presence. You know, um, the, pl- the script helps, <laughs> but really, <laughs> sure. you, you do yeah. that. You you do that. She did that. Do you find that you maybe? I mean, you spent so much time doing, you know, Breaking Bad, and then to Better Call Saul, and sort of like disappearing into this role. Um, do you miss sort of, you know, the early parts of your career of like Mr. Show and doing sketch comedy and running a room? Is that an itch that you still have? Or are you just sort of like, I don't really have an interest in that sort of particular chaos anymore? Yeah, it's a good question, Ira. You know, I love sketch comedy still very much. I love comedy. I love being silly. Um, I'm 60, almost 61. And in some ways, I'm, I'll am i just never not be that guy who made that show and loves thinking about things like that. And I hope to have more of that in my life, you know, get to do a show, which is to say, I'm saying I would love to get to do more pure comedy. Um, I think I, I've found whether you like it or not, there's things you want to do, um, but then you have to also work with where you're at in life and how you look and how you sound and what you can, what you can do. And I think that there's great rewards in drama. And I think I belong there right now. I just think I belong there. I, 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 it has something to do with age. Um, You know, John Cleese said, and I'm going to, it's a paraphrase, but he said, you know, when you're young and you do sketch comedy, you know, you pretend to be a doctor, a lawyer, a judge. You know, if you watch Python, there's all these lawyer and judge scenes. Um, mm-hmm. But everyone's laughing right away because you're 26 years old and you're not a judge and you're not a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> but when you're 50 or 60, well, that's not automatically funny. You might be a judge. You know, so right away, all those things you you're pretending to be when you're young and doing sketch comedy, which is everything in the world, it's all, you're just smiling right away because these are a bunch of young people. They're mocking everything. And you don't have that automatic smile once you get older. And once the actors and the presenters are older, it's a weird thought. Maybe it's not true, but I think there's some truth to it. Um, So I'll find a way to do it. I mean, this book is one way to do it. If you like Mr. Show and the sensibility of Mr. Show, then I think Zillit has a lot of that sensibility in it uh, with none of the swear words. (laughs) Well, well, thank you both for being here. Like the book is so delightful and uh, also something you just want to look at on yourself too. So uh, congrats on the book. Thanks for saying that. Well, thank you. Thanks for having us guys. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? 
Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams' soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. (laughs) Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives have it always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine bold, naturally aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger, eating thick-cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag. (sighs) It's nice to dream about cheese for a bit. Tillamook cheddar, extraordinary dairy. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It's Keep It, Lewis. Yes. What are you keeping? I'm batting my eyelashes, waiting for you to call my name. Uh, Jessica Rabbit. Yeah. (laughs) Man, do I miss Kathleen Turner voice performances. Can we bring that back? Anyway, uh, my keep it is to, uh, I had a work obligation last night, so I couldn't go see Pink perform at SoFi Stadium. Not that I'm like an obsessive Pink fan or anything, but you know, if you probably, if a ticket ended up in my lap, I'd probably be happy to see her. You know what I mean? Like the vocals are. I want to see that bitch fly. No, please. She might hit you. Yeah, I mean, like, you, like she's zooming around the room like fucking Mr. Bill. When I saw her perform, it was before. I think it was before all that flying shit. The only time I've seen Pink in concert was she opened for Justin Timberlake on the Future Sex Love Show. 
Oh, okay. Got it. Well, she is, of course, still an acrobat and doing her tumbling antics and all that stuff. But anyway, during the show, she fucking brought out Alanis Morissette. And mm. uh, Alanis Morissette, they just sang like, you ought to know with her or whatever. I keep it to myself because I would have fucking wept at a pink concert. I'm, I'm just like, <laughs> my friends would be concerned about me as I stood there and watched this Canadian woman absolutely slay these vocals. Alanis, also somebody, people don't really talk about this. She had a particular vocal style when she emerged and it would be, it would be kind of derided sometimes, even though people loved her vocals, that it was like screamy or whatever. She sounds better than ever to me. It's like, she's a very like, um, she's zoomed in on the qualities of her voice that are distinct. And now she's a better singer with those qualities. So she's not eliminated any of her individuality, but just if I, 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 I am mad I wasn't at the concert, but know that if I were there, I would have been weeping at a pink concert. I just want to say that that is embarrassing to admit. And that's my keep it for myself this week. Mm. How you often are you likely to cry at a concert? I don't think of you as a crier. I cried at the Renaissance tour. Oh yeah. Which part? The dangerously in love, like opening. Oh, oh well the open, that's a very intimate the, moment for such a vocals, stadium. Yeah. That was like, I was, it was very unexpected. It caught me off guard yeah. too. I did not see, I didn't, I like, Hadn't looked up spoilers or anything before it happened. So I didn't know the set list. And when that opened up with that, I was just like, it moved me. Also, there's something about opening with that. Like the unceremoniousness with which she just like comes on the stage. It's like, I'm going to give you some vocals for a second, basically before the show begins. Like I've not, I can't Mm. think of somebody else who's ever done that. It's a really interesting approach. Opening for yourself is more people should do it. You know? It sounds like the title of an Oprah book. Like, you should be opening for yourself. <laughs> Forward by uh, Deepak Chopra. Honestly, more people should do that, though, because I feel like that is a way to get two different versions of a show, you know? Like, I mean, I wish Madonna would do that because I'm like, no, okay, come and open for that- yourself with a fun moment. And then if the rest, if the rest of the concert is the Rebel Heart World Tour, well, I'm going to leave. <laughs> <laughs> that, right, it's a good way to it's a good way to like roll through material you're not psyched about or that you think people want to hear so it's like oh yeah give us uh, what does she not like about like now she says she doesn't like holiday or like material girl or whatever yeah so yeah that a concert is allegedly happening soon i know right i have a ticket for it because uh, for comic <laughs> relief we'll see if i end up at this concert but <laughs> Ira, okay. what is your keep it this week? I think I brought this up before, but I have a renewed anger. I'm in my bodega, you know, New York City, <laughs> New York City. Uh, I'm in my bodega. Diaz here. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so I go to my bodega, you know, and I want, I want some of my juice, you know. Uh, I just oh left God. the gym. And, Rosie you know, I, Perez, I want, no. Uh, yeah. I really want something, you know, like sweet, you know, like wet my appetite, you know, enliven uh, <laughs> the senses. And I want to get a Snapple. And I taste a Snapple. Mm-hmm. And it's disgusting. And you know why the Snapple's disgusting? Because I'm drinking it in a fucking plastic bottle. Oh, right. Yes. I Bring mean, where, uh, back glass. Bring yes. back glass Snapple bottles. It's we're never going to taste Snapple out of a glass bottle again, are we? The, the I, classic bottle, it, I feel like it makes it taste vile. It, it's just a different experience altogether. I mean, like, I, I forget what drag queen I'm quoting, but I'm not seeing any glamour. Yeah. Not only is it plastic, but they kind of want to make it look like glass. So you're actually a little disappointed every time you go to grab it. It's just ugly. And I think that the sort of 
sensory um, thing you used to feel with grabbing a glass bottle, a chilled glass bottle of yes. Snapple, opening it, that pop happening, reading the trivia that was on the top of it. It 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 sort of gives you. 90s it makes you feel like you're about to go watch nickelodeon not at bob odenkirk's house because oh yeah right <laughs> i'm not allowed there interesting Maybe. point yeah he he he, he would have had something to say too about coming to visit me in college and being like why are you stoned watching wizards of waverly place again <laughs> i'm like it's an all saturday thing for me bob I know complaining about this makes me sound like Delta work or something, but (laughs) I'm just, I am so incensed when I see these Snapple bottles. I almost reached for one today and instead I got one of those um, fucking body armor drinks, which Mm. are so weird. They're just like flavored water. I always get the zero calorie one and then it tastes like sand. But yeah, it's because I can't have a Snapple. There's a lot of um, murky waters on the market right now. Like you can get yeah. you can get just off water and all these different ways. I will say I always knew Snapple was going downhill after they got rid of Wendy, the Snapple lady. And then she mm. had to go on Celebrity Fit Club to remain, you know, I don't want to say relevant, but like, you know, in our faces. And I thought she was very winning on that show. You know what? Wendy Kaufman. Yes. She was that girl. Oh, please. Oh, excuse me. I was thrilled about Snapple in the 90s because she was selling it. To, like, the, the way people have, like, I guess, an affinity for flow from Progressive, not me. I gave that all to Wendy. I'm Wendy pilled, as they say. I don't give a fuck about flow. No. What has she done for us? She has red hair, so what? I want Wendy, and you know who else I want? I want a buddy comedy with Wendy and Diane Amos, the Pine Saw Lady. You cannot just bring up the Pine Saw Lady like that. She came out... <laughs> she, she, she said, we'll be back to Jeopardy in just a minute. First of all, your place is disgusting. That's what she said. And she, she's like, you want it to smell like lemons in your place. By the way, you don't really. But like when she said it, I was like, I do, I do, I do. Yeah, that was definitely a product that I was more into the concept of than actually cleaning our home with Pine Sol. Because after you clean your home with Pine Sol, it, you truly can't be in the house. It's like you <laughs> sprayed for right. cockroaches. And it's also just like, it's like very elevated car air freshener flavor. You know what I mean? It's just not, you don't need that permeating a space. But like her character work, right there. I was right there with her. The 90s was really just about having um, women of a certain size shaking a bottle in front of you (laughs) and making you feel happy. You know? Right, right. And yet, when it came to fatty things like wheat thins, a very stick-thin woman like Sandy Duncan would sell it to you. So there's like yeah. a lot of math going on there. Yeah. You know, well, fat people can clean your home and make you feel jolly, but yeah. you don't want to buy wheat thins from them. <laughs> By the way, as you know, wheat thins still a, a lovely snack. If I haven't touted them in a while, I'm still on the wheat. I'm still wheat thins pilled. Wendy and wheat thins pilled. That's me, Lewis. Do you eat wheat thins? Still. Oh, sure. Me, excuse me. All I want to do in this life, there's a, like the little bowl of something salty in front of me. And you can't see this if you're listening to the podcast, but if you're watching the show, you can't see me dipping my little wrist in like this. It's like over, <laughs> it's like I'm in my family. And I, I, I pick it up and I'm like, tick, tick, I, like I'm biting it like this. I have, a, uh, you know, my, my incisors are coming down like a woodpecker. That's how I want to eat things. You know what? I might have to treat myself today to some wheat thins and, you know, some. Some nice cheese from the store. I love a nice cheese and a cracker. 
Oh, please, please. I feel like that's sort of the epitome of um, you're an adult and you're at home and you're making a snack for yourself. You know, it's like you got nice cheese. Oh, absolutely. No, uh, of course you can eat wheat thins plain too, but there's something about, yeah, uh, cheese is like among the most addictive. I, I didn't understand as a kid. I thought all cheese was kind of gross because, you know, I grew up in a, like a Midwestern family with like boys and stuff. I didn't understand that like cheese is not just like something melted on the other thing you're eating. No, there's like a, there's something very um, um, riche about a, a wonderful cheese. Yeah. All right. Well, these are lovely takes that our audience <laughs> definitely wanted. <laughs> We're like a million years old. And <laughs> Wheat thins and, and cheese yes, and yes. Snapple. Uh, that's our show this week. So thank you to Bob and Aaron Odenkirk for being here. And we will be back next week with more Keep It. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. And our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III and Louis Vertel. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to our digital team, Megan Patzel and Rachel Gajewski, and to Matt DeGroot and David Tolls for production support every week. And as always, Keep It is recorded in front of a live studio audience. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.